Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Today I'm delighted to be talking with American writer Britt Bennett about her second novel, The Vanishing Half, which shot to number one on the New York Times bestseller list in its first week. It's published here in Australia by Hachette and it was out in June. Britt was born and raised in California and graduated from Stanford University. She later earned her MFA in fiction at the University of Michigan. Britt's first novel, The Mothers, out in 2016, was critically acclaimed and a New York Times bestseller. She is a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 awardee. Now, that's an award which recognises young debut fiction writers from around the world whose work promises to leave a lasting impression on the literary landscape. And I think you'll agree when we finish talking that Brit's work is certainly likely to do that. She now lives in Brooklyn, New York, and as well as writing, she teaches creative writing at Stony Brook University in New York. Brit's work is published amongst other places in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine and Paris Review. Britt, welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Could I start by asking you to tell us what your second book, The Vanishing Half, is about? Yes, so The Vanishing Half is about uh, identical twin sisters, Desiree and Stella, who grow up inseparably as children. And then as they grow into women, they decide to live their lives in, in dramatically different directions. One is a white woman and one is a black woman. And could you start by reading a short extract for us from the novel? Sure. So this is just a little bit from the beginning of the book. It was a strange town, mallard named after the ring-necked ducks living in the rice fields and marshes. A town that, like any other, was more idea than place. The idea arrived to Alphonse de Sore in 1848 as he stood in the sugarcane fields he'd inherited from the father who'd once owned him. The father, now dead, the now-freed son, wished to build something on those acres of land that would last for centuries to come. A town for men like him, who would never be accepted as white, but refused to be treated like Negroes, a third place. His mother, rest her soul, had hated his lightness. When he was a boy, she'd shoved him under the sun, begging him to darken. Maybe that's what made him first dream of the town. Lightness, like anything inherited at great cost, was a lonely gift. He'd married a mulatto even lighter than himself. She was pregnant then with their first child, and he imagined his children's children's children, lighter still, like a cup of coffee steadily diluted with cream, a more perfect Negro, each generation lighter than the one before. Soon others came. Soon idea and place became inseparable, and Mallard carried throughout the rest of St. Landry Parish. Colored people whispered about it, wondered about it. White people couldn't believe it even existed. When St. Catherine's was built in 1938, the diocese sent over a young priest from Dublin who arrived certain that he was lost. Didn't the bishop tell him that Mallard was a colored town? Well, who were these people walking about? Fair and blonde and redheaded, the darkest ones no swarthier than a Greek. Was this who counted for colored in America, who whites wanted to keep separate? Well, how could they ever tell the difference? By the time the Veen twins were born, Alphonse de Sore was dead, long gone, but his great-great-great-granddaughters inherited his legacy whether they wanted to or not. Even Desiree, who complained before every Founder's Day picnic, who rolled her eyes when the founder was mentioned in school, as if none of that business had anything to do with her. 
This would stick after the twins disappeared. How Desiree never wanted to be part of the town that was her birthright. How she felt that you could flick away history like shrugging a hand off your shoulder. You can escape a town, but you cannot escape blood. Somehow the Veen twins believed themselves capable of both. And yet, if Alphonse Sore could have strolled through the town he'd once imagined, he would have been thrilled by the sight of his great-great-great-granddaughters. Twin girls, creamy skin, hazel eyes, wavy hair. He would have marveled at them. For the child to be a little more perfect than the parents, what could be more wonderful than that? So the book opens in 1968 in the rural town of Mallard in Louisiana, which you've just described for us. I understand that Mallard is fictional, but it's based on a real town. Could you tell us a little bit about that town and how you found out about it? Yeah, so the, the book um, really originated from a conversation I had with my mother uh, one day a few years ago, where she mentioned very offhandedly this town that she remembered hearing about when she was a child growing up in rural Louisiana. And it was a town, uh, a black mm-hmm. town, where everyone intermarried so that their children would get progressively lighter. And, and this was something she said to me very casually, as if, it was something that everyone just kind of knows. And I, and I was kind of like, wait, 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 go back, tell me more about this. And um, so I was always interested in, in, in it almost as a kind of mythological space because it wasn't a place that she had ever been. It was a place that she heard about. Um, and I, I was always kind of interested in it in that way. And, and I think as soon as you start thinking about a place like that as a novelist, you think, okay, this is a story. Mm. And the story begins in 1968. What's the significance of that year? Uh, it's, it's significant to, to me in a few different ways. I think there's a personal aspect of it, which um, was, goes back to my mother again. That was the year she left home for the first time and, and moved to D.C. And she arrived in the city right uh, the week that Dr. King was assassinated. Um, so it was a moment for her of, of sort of, you know, she's 19 years old. She's sort of growing up and out on her own for the first time. And she finds herself like a you know, front row, this cataclysmic uh, event. Um, so I, I think for me that that moment, it always was married and kind of there was personal fam- family lore and also these events of huge national and international significance, uh, whether it was the assassinations of Dr. King or Bobby Kennedy, um, you know, the sort of escalation of the Vietnam War, um, you know, the, the rise of Black Power Movement, there were all of these different events um, that are happening at that time. And I wanted to think about how to marry those kind of big historical moments to the the smaller and more intimate emotional crises that all the characters are experiencing. So when the book opens, Desiree's returning to Mallard um, 14 years after she ran away to New Orleans with Stella, her identical twin sister, when they were age 16. And not long after that, about 18 months, two years later, Stella disappears from the flat that she's sharing with Desiree, without a trace. She leaves a short note but disappears without a trace and nobody has seen her since. Could we wind the clock back and talk a little bit about Desiree and Stella and their childhood? How close were they and what was their childhood like? Yeah, they grow up in Mallard. They grow up as sort of the epitome of what uh, what a Mallard uh, child or resident is supposed to be because they're very fair-skinned um, and they, as the part of the book I just read from, they descend from the person who's founded the town. So there's the way in which I think they have, they have some, a bit of status maybe in this town, but at the same time, they grew up very poor. Um, their father has been killed very brutally. Um, and that's an event they've witnessed together and, and shapes their psyches as, as they become women. 
Um, and as a result, their mother is uh, works as a domestic worker and takes in cleaning. Um, and they all they really know is kind of deprivation. Um, so it was interesting to me to think about this town of Mallard where people gain a, a sense of status from being fair-skinned, but at the same time are still suffering from the same discrimination that all Black people are experiencing this moment. They're not spared um, the discrimination. They're not spared the violence. They're not spared any of these uh, these aspects of Black life at the time that they think they could can kind of protect themselves from by by sort of engineering a population that, that is fairer and fairer. Can we go back to the death of their father? They witnessed sure. that. Could you just tell us what happened and how old were the twins when that happened? They, that's a good question. I think they were about five, four or five. Okay, that's bad that I could not remember that detail. Um, I knew they were young, um, but but yeah, it's it's a it's a brutal scene. They they witnessed their father being lynched by um, a group of white men, and you know I. I liked the idea of this being a moment that they witnessed together and also a moment where they, they kind of begin to splinter into the two different people they are. Um, you know, in the way in which you talk about, you know, when, um, you know, a baby looks into a mirror and realizes that it's, you know, his reflection and it's not another person. Um, that's kind of how I thought of that moment. Like they looked at each other and realized that they are inseparably two different people, even though they are experiencing and witnessing the same thing all the things that they are feeling in that moment are so separate. Um, and, and that's, a, I think a moment that is so pivotal for the two of them and, and instrumental in kind of setting them off on their, their separate paths. It does. But something I thought was really interesting was that they each put their hands, not over their own mouths, but each girl puts her hand over her sister's mouth. I thought that was really an indication of how very close they were intuitively that that's what they did. I think so. And also not only how close they are, but also the idea of not knowing what each other is going to do in that moment. I, that was something that, that I thought about with that image, because this idea of thinking, you know, I know I'm not going to scream, but you might scream. Um, there's a moment again of, of that separation between who we are. Um, the idea that this is somebody who has become unpredictable to you because you're experiencing this traumatic and, you know, really, uh, you know, insane sort of thing that you're witnessing and you don't know how that person's going to react in that moment. The novel shifts between the different points of view of the main characters, Desiree, Stella and their daughters, Jude and Kennedy. Let's, let's talk a little bit about each of those main characters. Let's start with Desiree. When she's away in the period after she runs away at the age of 16 and before she comes back 14 years later, she marries a man called Sam who's described as the darkest man she could find. Why does she choose to marry a man who is so dark, given where she's been brought up? Is that her way, do you think, of rebelling against Mallard, which values paleness so highly? Um, I think it's a lot of things. Um, I think that that's definitely an element of it is, is there's a rejection of where she's from and her home. And she feels, you know, a lot of resentment towards this place. I think also in part because of what Stella has has become and who she's chosen to be, which feels like an extension of the kind of uh, Mallard ethos that that Desiree rejects by by taking her life in the completely opposite direction. Um, so I think there's an element of that, but I also think that there is an element of the fact that she just loves this man. <laughs> you know, he's somebody I, I wanted to to write about this relationship, which becomes abusive and becomes a situation that she has to escape. Um, but thinking about it back in the beginning before it is abusive and where this is a man who 
kind of sweeps her off her feet. He's, he's, you know, well-educated. He has a nice job. He's, he's a lawyer, anyone. right? He's a, a He's a lawyer. Yes. And he's unlike anyone she's ever met in her life. And she's also very young at the time. And, and he kind of sweeps her off her feet. She's experiencing life um, in DC away from home. And, and he kind of comes in at the beginning as a sort of Prince Charming who, who later reveals himself to, to be a, a violent and dangerous person. Why does she decide to come home after 14 years? Ironically, you make it clear to start with when we're talking about the two girls and the plan that they hatched to run away when they're 16, that it was very much Desiree's idea and that people had always known that Desiree didn't want to stay in Mallard. She wanted to get out of Mallard and she's the one that really has to persuade Stella to come away with her. But ironically, it's Stella who in effect runs away forever and Desiree comes back. Why does she do that? Um, you know, she is um, escaping this dangerous marriage and this uh, this abusive marriage that she's been in for years um, and really has no other place to go at this point. You know, I had to think, I knew that I wanted to start the book with, with Desiree returning after kind of being gone and living this life that's very mysterious uh, to, to the people who are still there and, and that kind of question of, you know, what's she doing back here? Um, I knew I wanted to begin in that, but I also knew because that, of Desiree's rejection of this town, it had to be an extreme reason why she's returned. Like she's not going to return for that town just because she wants to come back. It's got to be something extreme that's pushed her there. Um, so in this case, it's really the the violence of this marriage. And finally she's able to kind of seize her opportunity to escape um, and escape with her child in order to protect herself and also to protect her daughter. And she really has no alternative, does she? Right. She has no alternative. She doesn't have any other money or any other place really to go. She just has money. She's, she steals from her husband's wallet and that's, that's kind of all she has on her. And she comes back with her daughter, Jude, and we'll, we'll talk about Jude a little bit later on. What sort of life does Desiree make for herself and Jude back in Mallard? She moves back home with her mother. Tell us a little bit about the life that she forges for the two of them. Sure. She, so she moves back home with her mother and they have uh, a fraught relationship, I would say, but they, they find ways to get along eventually. Um, and she ends up becoming a, a waitress at the, the diner. Um, she can't find a job uh, doing the type of work that she'd been doing before, which was very technical and skilled work. Um, but because she's unable to find a job doing this um, as a black woman at the time in Louisiana, she becomes uh, a waitress. Um, so, yeah, I liked the idea of her uh, her not being able to find uh, that same level of skilled work that she had been doing, but still forging a new life for herself in this town that she always swore that she would escape. At this point, when we meet her in 1968, Stella's been gone for 13 years, um, which is just a little under, the, under half her life. How does Desiree feel about the fact that Stella has disappeared? Does she miss her? I think that she misses her. I think she also resents her. Um, I think it's a mixture of those feelings. She feels haunted by the fact that her sister is gone and she returns to the place where they live together. She's in the house in the bed that they shared and, and, and feels really haunted by her absence. Um, but I think that she also resents the fact that Stella not only decided to be somebody else, but she did so in a, in a way that left Desiree behind. The fact that her sister has chosen whiteness essentially over her own sister. Um, that's the thing that I think that she actually feels hurt and also some anger over. Let's talk then a little bit about Stella. When the story shifts to Stella's point of view, uh, we meet her on the same night in 1968, the very night that Desiree is returning to Mallard. 
what sort of life has Stella made for herself since she ran away from New Orleans 13 years before? Yeah, we, we pick up with Stella again. She's in California. She's kind of a, a bored suburban housewife. Um, she's gotten married and has a daughter uh, and has, is trying to convince herself that she's very happy and satisfied with her very comfortable life. Um, but in fact, it's pretty apparent that she's quite miserable and also quite lonely. Who's she married, Britt? Uh, she marries a man named Blake, who uh, we learned was uh, her former boss. Um, and she's met him in New Orleans and, and kind of has escaped with him. Um, and and uh, now they are married and living in the suburbs in, in L.A. And her getting that job was really the trigger to when she first starts pretending to be white on a full-time basis. She's done it a couple of times before, we learn. But just tell us about how she how she really made that step for the purposes of getting that job. Yeah, I liked, I, I, I was interested in the idea of passing as something that um, can be temporary, but also can be permanent and how you might slip from one of those sort of uh, modes to the other. Um, so we learned that Stella has had moments where she's kind of played with it, where she's temporarily passed sort of for the thrill of it almost, the, the excitement of getting away. With it. Could you just explain what passing is? Um, yeah, I think... Uh, passing this, the act, I guess, of being born and raised a black woman and assuming an identity as a white woman um, is is how I would define passing. Tell us how Stella does that first on a full-time basis, where she sure. makes the major transition. Sure. So Stella and Desiree, um, Stella loses her, her job that she's had in New Orleans and she desperately needs another one. She goes to interview uh, to become a, a, a secretary. Um, and realizes uh, that, that she has been assumed to be white at this, at this office and, and decides to go with it because she's worried that she will not get the job otherwise. Yeah, that, that was what I wanted to ask you about. That's the reason she does it, isn't it? She, she really knows that she won't get this job in a right. white law firm if they know right. that she's black. Right. And the idea is that she's, she is equipped to do this job. Again, it's, it's the same thing with Desiree. Of having these skills as a fingerprint analyst, you know, Stella is capable of typing and all of these things that she needs to do to get the job. And I think at first is able to convince herself that, you know, well, what's the big deal? I can do the work. Who cares if they read me? If somebody misread me as white and I went along with it, then how is that my responsibility? Um, but later you see that she begins to uh, like being white. She begins to like being treated as white. She begins to sort of fall deeper and deeper into that role until that becomes the, the real life that she's living. And it's lovely the way you describe, I think, the way that works before she actually disappears, how she puts on this persona of she calls herself Miss Beans when she's the white secretary at the office. And then when she comes home to be with Desiree, she goes back to being Stella. Can you tell us a little bit about that, about that transitional period and how, how she manages that? Yeah, I mean, I've read, I've, I've read various... Um, historical accounts of, of passing. And, and that was always something that was interesting to me, people who, who do it temporarily, um, because a lot, there are a lot of stories about people who pass temporarily for jobs usually uh, and have one life when they're at work and one life when they're at home. Um, and the idea of balancing that, how do you kind of commit to that and how do you keep all of this straight and what happens if you're out and somebody spots you and, you know, all of these questions that came to mind um, about the idea of living that kind of split between life. Um, so I wanted to, to try to represent Stella's psyche and, and allow you to see her 
beginning to transition where uh, the the idea of being Stella, of being her black self, becomes so um, unsatisfying, uh, yeah, unsatisfying to her that that she eventually decides to discard it and, and become this fiend for forever. And so when we meet her in 1968, she's married. She's living a pretty wealthy, well-to-do life with her husband, who's a lawyer. She's got a daughter, Kennedy, who's blonde and blue-eyed. What has she told her husband, Blake, and her daughter, Kennedy, about her family and about her past? She tells them that her family is dead um, and has kind of invented a very tragic backstory for herself so that people will not ask further questions. And she's kind of able to hide uh, behind that and, and has had to sort of psychically and emotionally kill off her family, which I think is also something that's, that's, uh, that's emotionally difficult to, for her to, to deal with. When we meet her in that opening scene, she's at a, a group of meetings of the residents in this particular neighbourhood and they're talking about whether or not they're happy about allowing a black family to come and live in the neighbourhood. And Stella's usually a pretty quiet person, but she speaks out loudly at this meeting, protesting and saying, famously, enough is enough. No, we don't want, we don't want a black family moving in here. What's she so scared about if a black family did move in? Well, I think she's afraid that they will recognise her and that they will see through the act uh, because, you know, I think there's, you know, this, this belief that she has always grown up hearing, which is that we can recognize our own. Um, so the idea that white people are easy to fool, but you can't fool black people, they'll know. Um, and I think that that is really her fear. So she has to kind of double down on this very racist rhetoric in order to sort of protect herself from, from being exposed. Mm. And she's so terrified. We really get that sense. She's living her whole life as a lie and she's so terrified of that lie being exposed. And there's one point where I think you deal with that very neatly. And that's when she's pregnant. So she and Blake have been married for a little while. She's pregnant. And she's, although her own skin colour is light, she's very frightened that she'll give birth to a child with dark skin. Now, what does she decide that she will tell Blake if that happens? Will she tell him the truth about her own background? No, I mean, she, she's kind of at this, at this place where she would almost prefer that he believed that she cheated on him with somebody, you know, like she's that deeply into, um, she's that deeply into the, the narrative that she's constructed for herself. And the idea of him thinking that she had kind of a momentary uh, lapse is better than him knowing that everything he has ever known about her has been lie. Mm. Does she feel guilty, do you think, about abandoning the twin sister that she's been so close to and her, her mother who was widowed so tragically at a young age? I think she feels guilty. Um, I think that she feels guilty for disavowing her family, particularly the idea uh, of sort of killing them off um, you know, emotionally. I think she feels guilty about that. Uh, but I also think she feels defiant and, and believes that if this is her life, she should be able to live it how she wants to live it. And it should only be up to her how she chooses to live. Mm. What price does she pay for living the way that she does in terms of her own relationship with her husband and her daughter? I mean, I think both of those relationships um, turn out to be quite strained. Uh, her relationship with her daughter, most of all. And to me, that was that became interesting because... I, I thought about the, the cost of, of having a relationship with somebody that you can never be truly honest with, um, a relationship where you always had your guard up and 
not only what, how that would be difficult for Stella herself, but how that would be really difficult for Kennedy because she doesn't understand why her mom keeps her at an arm's length. She doesn't understand why her mother does not want to be known. And she reads that as a rejection of herself. Um, and that's not the full picture, but she has no context for knowing it. Um, so I liked the idea of Stella being in this really impossible double bind because on one hand, she has kind of cemented herself into this new white world because that's where her husband is and that's where her daughter is. And because she cares about them, that's where her life is now. There's kind of no going back for her at this point. But on the other hand, if she, she worries that if the truth about her past comes out, that she will lose those people. Uh, so they, they create sort of emotional stakes for her of why she stays and also why she has to continue to lie, which further complicates those relationships. And was that a rational fear, do you think, back in 1968, this fear that she has that if she was exposed, even after all these years of a happy marriage, making a life with Blake, 1968, is that a rational fear that if Blake and her daughter found out the truth that they, they wouldn't want her to be part of their lives anymore? I mean, you know, you could read stories. I mean, I've read people dying in the 2000s um, who, as they are dying, reveal to their children that they had passed or they're, you know, mm. I, I mean, these, these, I, I think it's, to me, it became, um, I mean, it became even beyond race. It became this idea of not only revealing that you uh, have some different racial identity, but also deveal, revealing your ongoing deception. Mm. Um, and I think that that is something that, that, sh that she is afraid of. I think that Blake certainly harbors, um, you know, some uh, pretty racist um, thoughts and he's, and he's pretty sort of complicit. Um, I think that Kennedy is a bit more evolved, but also still um, has her own stuff when it comes to race. Um, but I think even that beyond their personal biases or their personal prejudice, just the idea of revealing herself to have been a liar for, for this amount of time or revealing herself to have lied about aspects of her life for this amount of time, I think that that's something that, that uh, would damage those relationships for sure. Let's talk now about Jude, Desiree's daughter. What does she look like, Britt? Um, she's a dark-skinned child. She looks like her father and not at all like her mother. And that's really emphasised in the language that you use when you describe her right from the word go. And you are looking at her, I know, through the eyes of the Mallard people. And their first response, their first reaction when they see her is that she's black as tar, that she's blue black. How do the children at the school in Mallard treat her? Um, you know, she's um, ostracised from the beginning um, and... That actually became, I think, most interesting to me was not not only the teasing, um, not only the taunting, although that's a big part of it, but just her loneliness of being in this place. The idea that she never really has friends, uh, that she doesn't get to sort of experience relationships or dating in the way that even her mother did. She doesn't have the, the experience as much as Desiree kind of resents the smallness of this town. She still has an experience of having friends and, and going to dances and all of those things that you want as a teenager. Um, where her daughter spends all of her time as a as a child and as a teenager basically alone. Reading books. Reading books, yes. Yeah. And you, I think you really um, portray the cruelty of the children, even the high school kids. How does that ostracising make her feel about, about herself, about her skin colour, but about herself? What feelings does Jude experience as a child and a teenager? 
I mean, I think she experiences a lot of uh, shame and violence. Uh, like I considered this violent, what she experiences growing mm. up. It's not just, it's not just like you're being teased because you wear glasses or because you have braces or something like that. Mm. It's something that's so, um, it's so intimate to be, um, sort of shamed for your body. Mm. Um, something so, that you can't, well, not even your body, something that you can't change at all. Right. Um, and, um, and I, I, I wanted that the violence of that to come through. Um, and the fact that not, not only the, the, the way that she experiences it in the moment, but also the way that she carries it with her, even after she leaves. What impact did those experiences of childhood have on her as an adult entering into relationships herself? I think it, it makes it very hard for her to trust people. Um, I think that it, it, um, makes her, uh, very critical about herself that she, has a hard time seeing herself outside of the way that the town saw her. Um, I, I, I liked the idea of, of, of that you can understand intellectually that the things that people said to you were wrong, but still be haunted by them and still find it hard to kind of shake the emotional um, residue that it leaves on you, even though you know intellectually that it was wrong. Mm, and I think you said it somewhere that I read that what came through so strongly was that Jude feels ashamed of her skin color even though she knows that that is really wrong for her to yeah. feel that way. And then that's almost like a double whammy because then she feels ashamed about being ashamed. Yeah, I think so. I mean, her mom, like even Desiree trying to do her best, but tells her to kind of, you know, oh, they're just teasing you, you know, kind of gives her that type of talk. But of course, Desiree doesn't know what this experience is like. She's never uh, been through that. And she's, she's never, she doesn't know at all what it's like for her daughter to experience this. Um, so her daughter, so Desiree kind of trying to tell Jude to shake it off, I think is something that also makes her feel ashamed because she's like, why can't I shake this off? Why can't I just ignore this and kind of keep going? Um, so it is something that I think weighs on her heavily through, throughout her life. Life gets better for her in, in 1978 when she leaves Louisiana to go to university uh-huh. at UCLA on an athletic scholarship, I think, as it is. And she meets someone called Reese at a Halloween party. Could you tell us about Reese? Yeah, Reese is uh, her, they become, they become really good friends. Um, he's a photographer um, and they, they meet at a Halloween party. Um, and I think for me, I, I loved Reese. I, I wanted to um, write a, a big sweeping love story for Jude um, in part because she experiences so much hardship when she's growing up. So I, I really wanted to, to think of, finding ways for her to find these relationships that would be, um, that would be really freeing and liberating and not, and not um, sort of oppressive like the ones that she experienced when she was growing up. Let's talk now about Kennedy, Stella's daughter. What's she like, Britt? Kennedy is, uh, I think, on the surface, uh, uh, sort of entitled, <laughs> an entitled uh, Breadwood Airhead, as somebody called her uh, today, which I enjoyed. Um, you know, she's an aspiring actress, um, and I think on the surface she seems quite entitled and quite bratty, um, but I think hopefully will later uh, turn to be a little bit more complicated as you see her um, trying to piece together all the mysteries of her mother's life and, and trying to piece together a lot of the things that she doesn't understand about herself. And you said somewhere that um, the characters you most enjoy writing are the ones that are least like you, and so you said you really enjoyed writing about Kennedy. Is that, is that right? 
I did. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm certainly more like Jude and, and far as being, you know, kind of studious and, and, and a little bit guarded. Um, but Kennedy is sort of big, bold character. She's very chatty. She's someone who never stops talking. Um, she's charismatic. She's very confident. And it's fun to imagine what it would be like to move through the world like that. You make a point by saying that she's also self-delusional at times. In what way? Yeah, I mean, I think that she's somebody who tells herself a lot of stories and some of those stories are true and some of them are not. And I think that um, there are versions of her life that she wants to believe, there are versions that she tells other people, there are versions that she tries to convince herself. And for me, it was that tension between the kind of stories that she tells herself and also the moments where she's able to see herself or see other people very clearly. Um, sometimes those moments come through where, where you're surprised that she is self-aware and she's not kind of this, you know, very self-absorbed actor just moving through the world, caring only about her own, her, like, you know, thinking of herself as just the protagonist and everybody else with these supporting characters. There's a way she moves through the world like that, but there are also moments where she is surprisingly self-aware. And I think that she becomes that way when it, when it comes to how she views her mother. Mm. And how does she view that relationship with her mother, with Stella? I think she, she feels very frustrated by it. Um, she feels like her mother uh, is disappointed in her because she's not studious and she's not sort of the scholar that her mom turns out to be. Uh, she, she also, uh, I think, is frustrated that her mother keeps her at this arm's distance and will not allow her to get close to her. It's no coincidence, it seems to me, that she is, or that she chooses to make a career out of acting. That, that to me seems to suggest that she really is Stella's daughter because Stella has obviously spent most of her adult life acting. Yeah, I was interested in, in performance, I think, in this book. The idea of performing race, uh, performing class, performing um, gender, uh, the the moments where a performance becomes real life uh, when you've performed for so long that it begins to feel real. And I think, you know, in the case of, of Kennedy, uh, you know, she wants to be an actor. She has these these aspirations. She feels most like herself when she's performing as somebody else. And that did feel like it echoed Stella's life in a lot of ways. Let's talk a little bit about that concept of performance. There's a lot of that in your book. There's a lot of performance. There's a lot of people reinventing themselves. Many of the characters, in fact, spend their lives reinventing themselves. There's a transgender character. There is a drag queen. We have Kennedy, who's an actor. What does that tell us about identity? Is it a fixed thing or is it a, is it fluid? Is it a construct? I mean, I, 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 what was interesting to me was the idea that identity is fluid, but at the same time has material implications on our lives. Um, so with this book, in the case of race, um, the idea that race, uh, in the case of Stella, the idea that whiteness can be successfully performed. Um, so what does that mean about whiteness itself? If you can perform it, if Stella can become white because she walks into a building and somebody assumes that she is, mm. then what does that mean that we have, you know, systems in our culture and in our country and in our world that are, that are set up propping up whiteness if it's something that can be achieved that way. Um, but at the same time, the idea that Stella walks into that building and is mistaken as white, that affects her life in real ways. That affects who she marries. It affects the amount of money that they're able to make. Um, it affects where they can live. It affects, uh, the life of her child and where her child ends up going to school and 
the opportunities that are available to her. Um, so to me, it was that tension between the kind of flimsiness of these uh, identity categories um, and, and the, the instability of them, the, the, um, the fact that they are not clear or even knowable necessarily, but at the same time affect our lives in mm. these very real um, and material ways. Mm. So, so, so much turns on those, on those constructs. Exactly. You put it really beautifully in an interview I saw. You said um, one of the things that you wanted to explore was what does it mean to live in a country that is built on racial hierarchies if the categories are permeable? If you can perform whiteness, what does it mean to be white? Have you found the answer, Brit, writing this book? No, I have not. <laughs> um, I think that I always, what I always tell people is that I'm always writing towards questions I never am quite arriving at answers. Um, I'm always just thinking about those questions. Um, but I did enjoy thinking about um, and challenging myself in a lot of ways of the idea that you can, even the notion that you can look at somebody and guess something like their gender or their race. You know, we have no way of knowing any of these things for sure. Mm. And yet we base so many of our assumptions, we base our actions on these things that are all just guesses. Um, so I think that it, it's challenged me in a lot of ways. Um, to sort of second guess when I have those moments creeping up, thinking that I know things um, about people, um, again, based on these categories that are inherently unstable and also unclear. Let's talk then a little bit about passing. That the particular this. So as I say, there are different types of reinvention in the book, but this is the central one. Obviously, Stella's reinvention through passing. There's quite, I understand it in the States, quite a literature or a history of literature about passing. What is it that made you want to write about it? To me, I think it's the, the kind of inherent contradictions within passing stories. Um, so on one hand, you have the person who is passing who uh, destabilizes those categories. As I said, you know, the idea of what does it mean to be white if you can move between whiteness and blackness um, so there's a way in which Stella is kind of a transgressive figure because she is destabilizing that binary. Um, but then there's this other way in which she reaffirms the binary because she's able to attain wealth and status, mm. but it's through being white that she's able to attain those things. It's not that her, it's not that her doing this is, you know, improving the life for any black person. She actually makes the lives of black people actively worse <laughs> throughout the, throughout the, the structure of the book. So to me, it's that inherent contradiction between a passing figure um, sort of being transgressive and destabilizing the hierarchy and also the way that they can also uh, reaffirm it at the same time. Because we see the, the material benefits that accrue to her as a result of that. Exactly. I wanted to ask you about colorism. I wondered, could you explain what is it and how is it different from racism? Um, I think colorism is just the idea that it's preferable to be lighter than it is to be darker. Um, and, you know, I, I, I talk about it in the context of, of Black Americans, but um, it's a phenomenon that happens uh, not only all over the world, but also in various races and ethnic groups. Um, I had somebody at a virtual event I just did who was Asian who was talking about experiencing colorism. Mm -hmm. um, so it's something that's a global phenomenon and, and across races and across ethnic groups. Um, and, it, you know, it sprouts from white supremacy, the idea mm -hmm. that it's preferable to be cl as close to whiteness as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. I read that it was that the idea had originated with Alice Walker. Is that right? With a, one of one of her books? Maybe the term. Yeah, I actually don't know about where that term comes from. Um, 
but but I think that um, like I said, I, I I wanted to write something about it um, and something about it that that was not intellectualized or wasn't abstract. I wanted to think about the feeling. What does it feel like for Jude to grow up in this place where she's treated uh, so uh, violently and hatefully? Um, by people who are supposed to be her own community, mm -hmm. um, but but they in fact ostracize and marginalize her. I can't not talk about the Black Lives Matter protests. I want to ask you about a piece that you wrote in 2014 for Jezebel, just as the Black Lives Matter movement was gaining momentum. You wrote a piece called "I Don't Know What to Do with Good White People," and in it you said something that I just thought was so profound. You said, I've seen good white people congratulate themselves for deleting racist friends or performing small acts of kindness to black people. Sometimes I think I prefer racist trolling. A racist troll is easy to dismiss. He does not think that decency is enough. Sometimes I think good white people expect to be rewarded for their decency. That's something, Britt, that could have been written in the last few weeks, obviously as the murder of George Floyd has ignited the Black Lives Matter movement, not just in the United States, but around the world. What would you like to see good white people do, in addition to marching and holding placards and posting supportive messages on social media and maybe buying books? What would you like to see the good white people do? I mean, again, I, I don't have an answer for that. Um, I think I wrote that, that piece originally out, out of a space, I think, of a lot of frustration. Um, Understandably, <laughs> yes, and and I think also a place of despair. I, I recently reread that essay and and was kind of shocked to see uh, that that feeling come through so strongly. Um, I, as now that a few years have come by, I was able to kind of look at it from a distance. Um, but and, I, th and I, I think it's a very I think it's a very valid point. And there was something that you wrote afterwards when you were talking about that in I think another one of your essays where you said something about white people have to actually lose something. It's not just enough to be waving placards and posting on social media and going out and reading books. White people themselves have to give something up to understand. I thought that was a really interesting concept. I wondered if you wanted to comment on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I think that we often talk about diversity and inclusion in this way that's additive. So the idea that it's good to have a diverse school because your white child will learn by having people from different backgrounds at the school around him and that will make him into a, well, a more well-rounded person. And that's the way that we like to talk about diversity and inclusion of sort of a tokenism. We allow one or two people uh, from marginalized backgrounds in this space and we all benefit from them being here. Uh, but that's, again, it's, it's still a focus on whiteness. It's, it's a standpoint that's based in whiteness. It's different to say, we want to have diverse schools and maybe your white child does not get into that school because a black child is in his space. And are you okay with that? And a lot of people are not. Um, they would rather have the few token people of color in the school and, because that enhances their child's uh, experience um, versus the idea of actually losing something in that, in that space. Mm. So I, I do think that that's, that's not a position that people, a lot of white people are comfortable with because nobody wants to lose anything. You want to think about reading anti-racist books because you are gaining the knowledge and you are gaining um, the enlightenment or whatever it is that you're trying to gain. Um, but you don't want to think about the idea of there being a black person hired instead of you, you know? So 
I think that that's, that's the next step for people, but I don't have any answers. I, you know, I'm a writer. I am writing towards questions always um, and just trying to make sense of the world around me. That was actually my last question that I wanted to ask you about this concept of the books by black writers. There are, as you know, a lot of anti-racist reading lists floating around right now. Lots of people in the books world are posting about books to read if you want to understand racism. You've made the very good point that people should read fiction. I'm talking about fiction now, not non-fiction. People should read fiction by black writers, not because it's good for them, not because they want to learn something, but just because the writing is so good. And I wondered if you could talk to us about some of your favourite fiction writing by black writers. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's been shocking to me to see people who are, you know, will be like, you know, I, I don't have any black writers on my shelf. Like, what should I? And I'm just like, what are you reading? <laughs> um, like, how are you reading any contemporary American fiction if you're not reading Jasmine Ward and you're not reading Colson Whitehead? Like, how are you reading any contemporary American fiction without those voices? Um, you know, so those are two giants uh, that I love. Um, I, uh, you know, my friend Waitu Moore just released a, a memoir and she's also got a novel that's great. Um, she's like Liberian American author. Um, Angela Flournoy, uh, who wrote the Turner House, um, also a fantastic writer. Um, you know, I, I think that there's so many exciting uh, voices um, right now, particularly a lot of um, black women who are writing right now. Um, so I hope to see people discover that that fiction and and enjoy the beauty of it. These are, you know, I don't, I don't think any, none of the novelists I know write fiction so that they can teach white people how to be good. <laughs> um, if you learn something about race by reading the book, that's great. Um, but, but you know, you want to read it because these are beautiful works of art and they, and they um, give you insight into what it is to be human and what it means to be alive. Great. Thank you so very much for talking to me today. I know how busy you are. I know how many of these Zoom interviews you must be doing and um, I'm just very grateful that you've found the time to talk to me and I can't recommend your wonderful book The Vanishing Half more highly. I'm not at all surprised that it's shot to number one so quickly and I have no doubt that it will do the same here. So congratulations and good luck with it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.